welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com, the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell. Airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in a an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. And soon, very soon, we will be airing on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. Over 6 million children and 5 to 9% of the total population in the United States has been diagnosed with a chronic hyperactive condition that causes poor working memory, inattention, distractibility, and poor executive functions. Skills that help you get things done like plan, manage time, and multitask. That same condition can cause the person with the disorder to become impulsive. That means for those of you who are listening and in the U.S., as many as 1 in 11 of you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Many more have the same condition, but without the hyperactivity component, as our guest believes her husband does. Those who have been diagnosed are told their brain works poorly and it needs to be fixed, most often with pharmaceuticals. Yet those who have ADHD or the less hyperactive version of ADD are often seen as our guest sees her husband as a creative thinker, a visionary with big ideas, big dreams, and big plans. However, that creativity and those ideas, plans, and dreams can often clash with issues regarding memory, attention, focus, time management, and multitasking, all of which are skills that seem necessary to function within our market-dominated and regimented society. In other words, their condition clashes with capitalism. In fact, It not only clashes with capitalism, but revolts against their time being controlled by the bottom line. It revolts against what past guest, the late, great David Graeber, called bull**** jobs. And the bureaucratic hellishness we find ourselves in under neoliberalism and its intertwining of governments and companies that makes them barely distinguishable from each other, as today's guest will explain. In a few minutes, we will have a conversation with writer, editor, and independent scholar Laura Basu, who posted the OpenDemocracy.net article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. ADHD is the neurological condition of late capitalism, but it's also its exterminating angel. Laura is Open Democracy's economics editor at OpenDemocracy.net. Laura is the author of Media Amnesia, Rewriting the Economic Crisis, and co-editor of the Media and Austerity, Comparative Perspectives. Laura is affiliated with the Institute for Cultural Inquiry at the at Utrecht University and Goldsmiths, University of London. She is the co-founder of the Amsterdam-based project 
Good Societies, which aims to develop ideas for new social structures. Since 2019, she has been Europe editor for Open Democracy's new economic section, Our Economy. Find out more about Laura at laurabasu.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-B-A-S-U. And learn more about Good Societies at goodsocieties.org. And again, find Open Democracy in all of Laura's writing at opendemocracy.net. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, how was your weekend? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, surprisingly social for uh, how much of an a social uh, animal I can be at times. <laughs> I was actually seeing uh, other people who were not my wife or our cats <laughs> on every day of the weekend, which hasn't happened in... Uh, I want to say since, you know, like... Before the pandemic? Yeah, basically before the pandemic, excluding, like, vacations or something. Right. Um, So, yeah, so that was... An oddly social weekend for you. An oddly social weekend. I just hope that uh, I don't regret that and uh, in in, in the form of uh, coming it down with uh, COVID or something. Because, (laughs) you know, that's... uh, it's still going on, and people still pretend like they're, they're. It's not, and it's driving me nuts. And uh, because I, so I, I found out this weekend um, that apparently you can develop long COVID um, symptoms or uh, ailments or uh, disabilities, basically, uh, from having an asymptomatic COVID infection. So basically, you don't have any COVID symptoms, and suddenly your brain breaks down. And the other thing is that even with after, if, if you get, you've gotten all the inoculations you've had all the boosters that you're supposed to have you can still come up with and you can still get covid mm. you can get a negative covid test but your symptoms aren't so bad that the test picks up on yep. you having covid so there are people right now who are suffering with they don't know what it is it could be covid it could it might not be but they have all the symptoms of covid yet every test tells them that they don't have covid so yeah people are Really not too sure as to what that, and we've got two variants now, not just one, but yeah. two variants out there. And it's like the whole the whole thing with the with capitalism running our society doesn't make this thing any better <laughs> in any way. No, so, it doesn't. Yeah. And uh, the only well, my weekend was actually. I know this is going to be surprising for everybody out there because I haven't had a good weekend in a long time. My weekend was actually pretty damn good for a weekend that began with my family doctor telling me that I had a hernia, which apparently is no big deal, and a typical side effect of what I've been suffering from over the past several months. My weekend was pretty damn good, despite being told I have a hernia, because I finally confirmed the date of my upcoming surgery, which will hopefully be the final medical procedure to address the infection in my digestive tract that nearly killed me killed me back in early March and forced me to miss two months of doing this show, the title of which has become perfectly apt. Yes, I said apt. Because while suffering in the hospital and in pain that needed not only morphine to quell that pain, but also Dilaudid and a couple of kinds of oxy, I had no doubt that this is hell. My surgery is now scheduled for July 7th, which means I'll be hospitalized again and not be able to be here for a week But instead of more than two weeks in the hospital this time, it's only going to be seven days. Well, a few days in the hospital and then maybe seven days of total recuperation. will also mean that moving into the future, I will no longer be missing a show or two or three a few times every week whenever the chronic infection flares up. 
That is, if everything goes right and nothing goes horribly wrong, which it can, as all surgeries can go horribly wrong, as my surgeon was forced to remind me, and I am really growing sick and tired of medical professionals telling me, well, you know, you could die. I also got a chance to hang out with friends, uh, one uh, very good friends of ours and uh, somebody who gives us a Bundestag calendar every year, which is fantastic, and I had a lovely walk in the uh, Forest Preserve. So all in all, pretty damn good weekend. But more important than any of that, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? <laughs> what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? That's a very good one. I'm looking forward to hearing that one. Uh, and for those of you who are, uh, if you're listening live right now and you're like, oh, I'm going to go listen to those, or watch those January 6th hearings. I think they've been delayed today because a witness decided not to show up. So just stay tuned in here. Besides, you're going to find out what happens later on anyway. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with uh, Laura on ADD and ADHD being anti-capitalist. Again, uh, the question from hell is, Sebastian, can you remind us? Uh, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Uh, that question was inspired by last week's Supreme Court decision to uh, basically say that Border Patrol agents uh, cannot be legally, uh, you know, uh, uh, sued. That, like, no court has jurisdiction over Border Patrol agents if they violate the constitutional rights. And so, we'll be talking about the border on next week's show. So very good timing on our part, even though we were not intending to be doing any Synergy! Yes, <laughs> Brave enough to be brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hal and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Torta Ahogada. Uh, writer Scott Lynch states that, quote, according to Chef Hugo Orozco, who opened the charmingly ramshackle restaurant Cruz del Sur in Prospect Heights, I guess that's Illinois. Uh, no, no, Prospect Heights uh, within Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I know, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> the torta ahogada is a sandwich with almost mystical restorative powers, or at least that's what they believe in Guadalajara. Guadalajara. How do you pronounce that? Guadalajara. It's where Guadalajara. my sister-in-law is actually from. Uh, where both he and his business partner, Oscar Gonzalez, are from. Uh, maybe it's the fatty, well-seasoned chopped carnitas stuffed inside, all the pickled onions, or the fiery chile del diavol that, uh, that you dump over the top, uh, or the lovely red sauce. Mm, the whole thing wallows in. Man, I want one of those now. I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> or the dense bread that sops it all up. But as Orozco told Brooklyn Magazine, quote, uh, it's a cure for your hangover, and in Guadalajara, uh, there are more torta ahogada stands in, uh, than taquerias. Lynch reports, torta ahogada is, uh, is, quote, absolutely delicious, it's just a beast of a sandwich. A beast of a sandwich. <laughs> You can get a vegetarian version as well, made with oyster mushrooms instead of meat, end quote. He then quotes she uh, Chef Hugo Orozco explaining, quote, The torta, torta ahogada is supposed to be only, uh, only, 
only be made in Guadalajara due to the uh, region's climate and the water and all of these other myths around baking the special birote bread. The Mexican, uh, the Mexican state of uh, Jalisco, the capital of which is Guadalajara, uh, has some, some French, French influence, influence because of the Crusades. <laughs> so uh, they have this beautiful bread uh, that they say is only possible to be made there. Uh, we are trying to replicate it here in Prospect Heights, learning more every single time with every single batch. And so far, we are happy with the results. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure... Uh, Cure. Torta ahogada. I left that other part in there just because the Crusades were mentioned in this week's Hangover Cure, and I don't know if that's ever happened in the past. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism if you'd like, at chuckatthisishell.com. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest. Greg G. sent an email writing, Hi, Chuck. Glad you are on the mend, even if you do have another surgery this summer. I just finished listening to last week's interview with Henry Giroux, and I noticed that he is no longer referred to as a correspondent on This Is Hell, and he had to answer a question from hell. Am I making it up that he was an official correspondent for a bit and correspondents aren't required to answer questions from hell? I should go listen to a recent interview he did with Telesur's Brian Muir to check out, but I'm too lazy right now. Wish I could be in Chicago this summer for your anniversary party, but it's probably for the better. I can still taste that malort that we drank when we met back in 2019. So first of all, Greg, Quit dissing, my lord. Secondly, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to remind everyone that our anniversary and listener appreciation party is happening Saturday, September 17th, downstairs from where I'm sitting right now at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. There will be music, food, a raffle, and we will be celebrating the closing party of the art show that always accompanies our parties, and that's a show called This Is Art. The art show opens Saturday, July 23rd during the celebration of Carrie's 50th year in operation. So if you would like your art in the show or would like to suggest someone's art, email me at chuckatthisishell.com with a sample of your or their work. And if you'd like to suggest a musical act to perform at our 26th anniversary party, which again takes place on Saturday, September 17th, the final Saturday of summer, you can also send those suggestions to me at chuckatthisishell.com. And if you want to donate something hellish to be raffled off, email me and tell me what it is you would like to donate or just mail it to us at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And Greg, as for Henry Giroux being our correspondent on neoliberalism as he was, well, Greg is a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, and he sent a follow-up email. Greg writes, Ha! I just heard you say on the Patreon podcast, well, the reason we ask Henry Giroux a question from hell is because I just want to ask everyone a question from hell. Good enough for me, Greg. So, Greg, count on me asking Brian Muir a question from hell the next time he reports to us from Brazil. Speaking of Brian Muir, he edited the latest edition of Lumpen Magazine, which not only features an article by me headlined, Is This Hell? How a low-budget Chicago radio talk show became a conduit of international dissent. And no, I did not come up with that title because I wouldn't have called us low-budget. I would say that we don't have much money, and that makes us low-budget. We have so little money. We can't afford to be a not-for-profit. But it also features uh, the issue of Lumpen that Brian has edited. also features 
an article from our very own Jeff Dorchin called Schismopolitan Awakening and a piece by Brian called No War But Class War. However, as always, those articles in that issue cannot be found online, only in the print form of Lumpen Magazine, which can be found at the Co-Prosperity Sphere and I believe at all the Lumpen-affiliated projects in the Bridgeport neighborhood on Chicago's south side. Coming up, ADHD and ADD, our anti-capitalists. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. The second installment of Seb's Soapbox, when producer Sebastian Vupert steps back into and through history to provide historical context to some of today's issues. Also, following our conversation with Laura, I'll be sharing my favorite messages from Houghton Lake High School graduating class of 2022 as they appeared in the small town weekly newspaper the houghton lake resorter of northern michigan and man the class of 2022 has some grudges they really needed to get off their chests apparently live from lake capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing this is hell attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are not what you think they are, or at least are not what I thought they were. After reading today's guest writing, and a recon- I had a reconsideration of the condition, and I have a new understanding of ADD and ADHD and their causes. Here to help us all have a better understanding of both so-called disorders, writer, editor, independent scholar Laura Basu posted the Open Democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. Welcome to This Is Hell, Laura. Hi, thanks very much. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. This is something I've actually been discussing within my family because somebody who has been diagnosed recently, you point out that your husband has attention deficit disorder. While he hasn't actually been diagnosed, he's way too ADD for that. Why do you believe your husband has ADD without being diagnosed? What are the signs of ADD, not just only in your husband, your personal experience, but but more generally? Yeah, so generally, I mean, ADD, um, the signs of ADD are things like um, problems with memory, problems with working memory, um, having difficulty focusing, so inattention, being distracted a lot, and then sort of difficulties with executive functions. So that's things like things that skills that help you get things done. So like manage time, multitask, plan and organize things, uh, that sort of thing. But yes, um, my husband kind of realized a few years ago, sort of in adulthood, that he most likely has attention deficit disorder, ADD. Um, And we tried to get him a a diagnosis, but the process for getting a diagnosis is completely inappropriate for people who have ADD. It, It was, it's as if it was designed to like prevent people from ADD getting diagnosed because you've got to jump through so many hoops and do so many bits of bureaucracy and wait for so long, which is the exact opposite of what people with ADD can do. So just when I was reading your article, when I began reading it, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to find out that my girlfriend, my partner of 35 years, uh, I was going to find out that she is somebody who may have ADD or ADHD. Instead, after reading your article, I realized that I think it's me that has ADD or ADHD. <laughs> is that commonplace where people recognize that you may have this disorder, if you will, but it's really difficult for you to recognize it yourself? Well, firstly, um, uh, well, 
I don't know if I should say congratulations, but it's nice that you realize that you <laughs> I think often it's like nice to it when it clicks, you know, when you're like, oh, so that's what it is. And I've actually had quite a few people get in touch after reading this article saying, oh my God, I've realized that I've most likely got ADD. Um, yeah, I think, I think it can take a while for it to sink in, you know. I think often if you read something, you know, if you read a book about ADD or read an article or something, then you can be like, oh, I see. But until you kind of, until it's all in one place and you kind of, you get the big picture, then I think it's hard to kind of realize these things about yourself, isn't it? Is, do you think there's a, and I hope this is phrased correctly, do you think there's a sense of shame either imposed by others on those who suffer from ADD or self-imposed by those with ADD and ADHD? I think certainly for older generations, um, you know, so my husband is 45 and he has definitely felt a sense of shame. Like he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't diagnosed in childhood, but he was kind of, you know, labeled as being a bit odd or a bit weird or, you know, some, you know, maybe someone who can't do things the way other people can or, you know, different, you know. And people sort of didn't take him seriously. And so that I think from a very young age, and I think that can be very traumatizing when you're a child to be told that there's something wrong with you, but not know what it is. And then when he like quite recently realized that, oh, it's actually ADD for a long time, he didn't find that to be very helpful. He didn't like that. He sort of he wanted to reject the label at first and then he sort of accepted that he had it, but he didn't really want to tell people. He didn't want other people to know because he saw that they would judge him and that it would kind of confirm people's opinions that he was weird or different or not to be taken seriously. But I think now he's in a different part of the process where he's accepting it and he's kind of embracing it. And I think. I like to think that there's a kind of new generation, the Zoomers, who are just very open about their things, you know, their divergences, whatever that divergence is, and who own it and embrace it. And, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's universal. I think there's still a lot of shaming and stigma, but I like to think that the younger generation are kind of, you know, showing up and owning it. You write that the books of the Hungarian-Canadian medical doctor and writer Gabor Mate have guided us in our journeys, yours and your husband's. Mate has written about ADD. He has it, chronic illness and addiction and compulsive behavior. He exhibits it. Mate dissents from the mainstream consensus on what causes ADD, which is that it's mostly genetic. He says that while there is a genetic element, what determines whether or not you develop it is the extent to which you receive the right nurturing in infancy. What is meant by the right nurturing in infancy? What kind of nurturing can help somebody overcome ADD at a younger age? Yeah, so according to Gabor Mate, so Gabor Mate, his view on ADD is not the same as the kind of mainstream view. So just to get that straight, um, the, the mainstream view is that it's mostly genetic. So you're born with it, nothing you can do. Mate says, actually, no, he says there is a genetic element. And actually that genetic element is hypersen uh, high sensitivity. 
So he thinks that everyone who has ADD or ADHD is highly sensitive and was born that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to develop ADD or ADHD. What determines whether or not you develop it is what happens to you in your early years of life, how you're nurtured. And according to ADD, you know, five, six of the human brain circuitry is wired after birth. So there's a huge amount that is done in the brain after you're born. And in order to develop a healthy and optimal brain wiring, you need certain conditions. So you need, you know, the material things like food and shelter, but you also need things like love and attention and attunement and, you know, a safe kind of emotional environment from your primary caregivers. And if for some reason that's disrupted or your caregivers can't give you, don't give you that or can't give you that, your brain wiring is going to go a bit haywire potentially, and that can result in things like ADD. So you mentioned food and shelter. When it comes to food and shelter, can poverty contribute or even cause ADD? Yes, definitely. Uh, for both things, so in terms of food and shelter, the material things, but also, you know, poverty causes a huge amount of stress and it also causes, you know, circumstances where parents might find it very difficult to spend the amount of time that their children need from them or give them the kind of attention or attunement that children, their infants need. Um, and it, you know, might create conditions where you're just very, very stressed out and you can't pay the kinds of attention that you need to be able to do to your infant. So those are all things that can exacerbate, that, that can determine whether or not you d develop ADD. So definitely your, your material circumstances can be a factor. You also write that the reason that people think your husband is a clown is that he's the most creative thinker I've ever met. Eric is a visionary. He has big ideas, big dreams, big plans. What role do you think ADD plays in coming up with big ideas, dreams, plans, being a visionary and a creative thinker? Yeah, I think, well, it's been shown, you know, research has shown that people with ADD often are creative thinkers and think outside the box. Uh, they exhibit something called divergent thinking and overcoming knowledge constraints. So they're not kind of burdened by the same kinds of um, limits that people without ADD have in terms of, you know, we often base our ideas on things that we've heard before or learned before. And so when we approach a problem, say we come with the baggage of our past thinking, whereas people with ADD are often free from that, from that sort of baggage. So they can just let their minds fire off connections in all directions um, and I think a lot of creative people do have ADD my brother um, lives in in Los Angeles and works in Hollywood and he has loads of people in the film industry have ADD so you also point out that uh, you know show me one parent who isn't stressed the eyeball struggling with work finances and trying to raise kids without enough help and and on and no sleep you know and I'll show you somebody you know you're right how parents are being stressed out and not being able to you know tune to their infant and and continue their job so 
is there evidence ADD or ADHD is a product of our era that it did not exist in a less work and finance oriented period during a time when far more of our lives could be spent raising our kids is, for instance, did Keynesian economics not uh, trigger ADD uh, to the to the point that neoliberalism does today? It's hard to sort of prove that because I don't I think, you know, ADD is a relatively new term uh, and people may have exhibited things in the past that we might now consider to be ADD but wasn't considered ADD then but certainly I mean rates of ADD are going up um, certainly rates of diagnoses are going up and there's a lot of underdiagnosis going on as well because like I said the process especially for adults is completely inappropriate for people with ADD um, so I I think it's hard to prove definitively and possibly there have always been people that exhibit traits that we consider now to be ADD, but I think it's kind of accepted that this is something, this is a problem that's growing and it's growing at a pretty fast rate. Growing at a fast rate too, uh, and you write of ADD and ADHD, these are individual neurophysiological features, but they arise within social contexts. Our capitalist societies create stressed out families, carceral schools, and toxic workplaces. No wonder our brains are going haywire on an unprecedented scale. ADD is a capitalist condition. What or How do you think that maybe... You know, the undermining of labor organizing and workers' movements have had an impact. Uh, to what degree have they contributed to this rise in ADD and ADHD? Do you think losing more and more workers' rights may lead to more and more uh, chances or cases of ADD and ADHD? Exactly, yeah. So, so the purpose of the article is to kind of explore this relationship between the personal and the political, right? So it's individuals that experience ADD and have ADD. But, you know, the question is, well, yes, it's an individual condition that is personal, but, you know, under under what circumstances do these conditions arise, right? Like what are the social conditions in which ADD is created? How do social conditions kind of exacerbate and feed ADD and how, do social conditions kind of determine that ADD is actually a disorder? You know, we consider ADD to be a disorder, pension deficit disorder, but who gets to say it's a disorder and under what conditions is it, is it a disorder? And, you know, capitalism creates those conditions. I mean, as we mentioned, Gabor Mate thinks that really the root of ADD is infants not being able to get the nurturing that they need. And that is capitalism that creates those conditions where parents or caregivers are unable to give their children the love and attention that they need. And definitely, and that's because of, you know, our experiences with work, right? With struggling with finances, struggling with work, having to work too many hours, having to work in horrible jobs, um, you know, having really stressful traumatic experiences with the state you know with law enforcement with social services whoever um having really um traumatic experiences in schools these are all conditions created by capitalism and you know 
exacerbated very much by the erosion of workers' rights. And it's these conditions that affect our brain wiring. Do you think that the uh, growing, increasingly uh, increasing privatization of healthcare, whether we have it here in the United States where uh, we have a very privatized, uh, public-private partnership, they call it, but a very privatized for-profit healthcare system, do you think that has an impact on leading people to having ADD, ADHD, or being diagnosed as such? Is it because of healthcare possibly trying to focus on the person being a good worker rather than just a healthy patient? Yeah, I mean, I think often kind of with ADD, especially with children, what is focused on are not the symptoms of ADD, but the signs. So not what the person experiences or suffers themselves, but the disruption that they cause to other people, to to schools or to to workplaces. Um, And it's those signs that are medicated. It's basically the wish to want to control the person rather than heal the person. You also admit that you are not the first person to say ADD is a capitalist condition. You then cite the late, great Mark Fisher writing in his 2011 classic Capitalist Realism that ADHD was, quote, a pathology of late capitalism, a consequence of being wired into the entertainment control circuits of hypermediated consumer culture. So does that wired state, do you think that also may even contribute to creative thinking? Does that hypermediated consumer culture also play a role in stimulating uh, creative thinking, although it may also lead to these kinds of disorders? Yeah, so Mark Fisher was looking at this kind of hypermediated culture that we live in and the role of that hypermediated, calls it blip blip culture, uh, you know, with social media, the the sort of churn of news and the whirlwind of social media and the sort of bombardment of images uh, and saying that, you know, this uh, and what that does to our experience of time, uh, which is to sort of create a very disorienting and discombobulating sort of experience of time, uh, which can affect your sense of self. Um, And he was looking at that, the the effects of culture uh, on ADD and ADHD and said, said, you know, if you you think about ADD and its symptoms of kind of being inattentive, having poor memory, you know, he says this this is archetypal for this kind of hypermediated culture that we live in. Um, But yeah, whether or not that also can create this kind of creative thinking, I think it does open up opportunities for new types of thinking and sort of creative thinking. Um, I think, you know, if you think about our hypermediated culture, it's uh, Gabor Mate argues that this is not actually the, the root cause of ADD, but it kind of feeds and exacerbates ADD. And you also mentioned how uh, Mate is clear that ADD is not a pathology. It's a developmental divergence. So what is meant by developmental divergence? How is that different from a pathology when it comes to ADD or the way that we approach ADD? Yeah, so pathology is a disease. ADD is not a disease. 
what it is is different wiring in the brain, in the part of the brain, in the prefrontal cortex. So people with ADD have different wiring and also different chemistry of the brain. So that's that's the difference. It's, so it's not like a disease that needs to be sort of medicated, although medicine can help. Uh, it's it's a it's something. It's a it's a neurodevelopmental difference. So it's a difference in the in the wiring and the chemistry of the brain that develops as a child. So do you think that that can be uh, addressed well? Can that can that problem be uh, taken care of with pharmaceuticals? How much success do you think you can have by giving somebody who has ADD or ADHD pharmaceuticals and taking care of that developmental divergence? I think that medication can help. And I think for a lot of people it does. And I think from what I've heard and read, um, you know, ADD is actually one sort of disorder, if you want to consider it a disorder, that can respond well to medication. And a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, who have the condition quite severely really, really suffer from it. And trying to tell those people that they shouldn't take medication is not a good idea because, you know, that will just make them suffer more. However, Gabo Mate says that um, while medication can be helpful in many cases, it should never be the first or only port of call. You shouldn't only medicate people. You should also, you know, offer people the opportunity to heal and to and offer people different conditions. Because the, the fact is that if you have ADD, you can't live in the way that is demanded of us by capitalists and by capitalist time. You need, you need some flexibility. Society needs to be a bit flexible for people with different brains. We are speaking with writer, editor, and independent scholar Laura Basu, who posted the OpenDemocracy.net article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. Find out more about Laura at laurabasu.com. You also mentioned that Mark Fisher was riffing on critical theorist Frederick Jameson's metaphor of the schizophrenic as typical of 1980s postmodern culture. Jameson described a culture in which... We are constantly being bombarded by random images, a series of pure and unrelated presence in time, as he writes. He wrote that people with schizophrenia embodied the fragmentation of identity that this experience of time creates, the failure to craft a coherent sense of self that connects the past, present, and future. Do you, do you believe that is the intent? Is that purposeful? Is successful content in our hypermediated consumer culture affecting the audience so it does not have a coherent sense of self that connects the past, present, and future? Do you think that's the intent of that consumer culture? Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the intent. I think it's more of an effect. I think, you know, what these... So the there is a cohort of kind of um, theorists and philosophers in the 1960s and 70s and 80s that theorized kind of mental illness and specifically schizophrenia and saw schizophrenia as being sort of um, archetypal of the culture of the time, late capitalist culture, which is again, this hypermediated culture and saw, thought that, you know, this kind of being bombarded with this being bombarded with images, this hypermediation, 
messes with our sense of time and because of that it messes with our sense of identity and selfhood that it, it, it becomes difficult or impossible to craft a coherent sense of self you know through past present and future but this in turn was an effect of the way that capitalism was developing right which was in this very kind of unruly way where finance became king where finance kind of went really off the rails and um, became sort of fictitious and became disconnected from the real economy um, and so everything became sort of unreal and everything became sort of sped up because finance is so fast right and it, there's no borders there's no barriers for it um, so it kind of consumes time and space and erodes kind of the passing of time uh, and it's capitalism it's the way that the um, economy is organized that creates our culture right that creates social media that creates um, the news churn that creates all of these things because it's about it's all about making money making profits so in a way the culture is an effect of the sort of unending profit drive if that makes sense yeah it does and you also uh write how uh who you, you cite who you call a preeminent add expert russell barkley uh saying that adhd is at its heart a blindness to time. Barclay is an author of many books on ADD and tours as a speaker on the subject in his retirement from being a professor of neurology and psychiatry. But you add that uh, your husband disagrees. You explain it's not a blindness to time, your husband argues, but an oblivion to a particular social construction of time, regimented, regimented clock time. What, what is meant by blindness of time? How is that different from regimented clock time and that uh, particular uh, challenge that Barclay seems to believe that we have? Yeah, so I think Barclay, Russell Barclay thinks that sort of at the heart of ADD is a difference in the experience of time, right? And I definitely see this with Eric. Eric experiences time in a completely different way to how I do. I don't have ADD. Um, he, for example, it, he cannot get to meetings on time like he he's unaware of time passing so for example if i tell him that it's 2 p.m he's like okay it's 2 p.m and then he'll i will be able to tell that time is passing and that you know it's now probably about five past two it's now probably about three eric can't like if i tell him it's 2 p.m he'll continue to think that it's 2 p.m until i tell him no, actually, two hours have passed. It's four, now 4 p.m. because time passes. He doesn't have that sense of time passing. He also, uh, in, in the past, he can't really sort of plot things chronologically in the past. Like for Eric, everything that happened in the past happened the other day. So it doesn't matter if something happened a year ago or if it happened yesterday. For him, it happened the other day. And he also has like... A, a totally different kind of memory like a lot of things he doesn't remember at all I mean I have this existential dread that if we were to ever break up he would just completely forget about me <laughs> tomorrow you know even though we've been together more than 10 years so it's just a totally different experience of time and that is you can you can see like if, if you hear that you can see how that that perception of time or that experience of time is completely um, incompatible with the kind of regimented clock time that capitalism and capitalist work and capitalism school imposes upon us, right? Because 
the way that we are kind of forced to experience time is that, you know, you have to set your alarm clock, you have to get up at a certain time, you have to go somewhere, you have to be at work or at school at a certain time, you have to do set tasks for certain amounts of time, then you have to leave at a certain time, you have to go home, then you have to do a bunch of things uh, in the evening to prepare for the next day so you can get up and do exactly the same thing tomorrow. You can see how that just doesn't work. Like if you, if your brain, you know, is wired as an ADD person's brain is wired, that you just can't do that. It just doesn't work. And you write that the the same. Uh, well, you write about um, like schizophrenia, ADD can similarly be understood not only as our era's totemic condition, but also as its Trojan horse. How are capitalist pathologies? Uh, like ADD, like ADHD, how are they a Trojan horse in your opinion? Yeah, so this is again riffing off some of these theorists' um, analyses of schizophrenia. So uh, we were talking earlier about Frederick Jameson, who talked about schizophrenia and sort of theorized schizophrenia as something social um, in the 80s. But there were also others. So there was a French philosopher called Gilles Deleuze and a, and a psychoanalyst called Felix Guattari who wrote a book about sort of capitalism and schizophrenia. And they argued, like Jameson, they argued that schizophrenia was not, again, not just a personal affliction or a personal mental illness, but it was a political condition uh, created by capitalism. But they argued that um, uh, schizophrenia was not just created by capitalism, but it was also potentially subversive of capitalism. It could also be the undoing of capitalism because, you know, late capitalism, neoliberal capitalism is very sort of unruly and chaotic uh, and kind of wild, uh, which creates cultures that are also unruly and disorderly and wild and chaotic and also, and also identities and sort of um, subjectivities that are, that are chaotic uh, like schizophrenia. But at the end of the day, capitalism also needs order and stability and rules, and it needs the state, and it needs the state's militaries, uh, it needs laws, it needs bureaucracies, and it also needs, capitalism needs good, stable, reliable citizens to do its bidding for it, right? To go out and work and do, do what they're told and, and obey. And the sort of chaos and disorder of schizophrenia threatens to undermine and disrupt the whole capitalist system. Uh, because it can't be kept under control. So this was sort of their theory of schizophrenia and the politics of schizophrenia. And I'm sort of trying to make the same argument about ADD and say, yeah, ADD is created um, and exacerbated by our neoliberal capitalist conditions. But you can also see ADD as subvert potentially subversive of capitalism because the ADD brain cannot and refute, completely refuses to work in the way that capitalism requires our brains to work in. And as you point out, uh, late capitalism, aka neoliberal capitalism, is disorderly, chaotic, unruly. As you were just saying, it's the economic Wild West where money is king, finance is fictitious, and all barriers to its flows are bulldozed. This creates cultures and subjective subjectivities that are also disorderly, chaotic, and unruly. So if neoliberalism is self-destructive and we live under neoliberalism, will neoliberalism destroy us? Does it come down to who will destroy who first, neoliberalism or humanity? 
Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's basically, yes, what it comes down to. <laughs> and uh, let's hope it's this, the second one that, you know, we come to our senses and perhaps, you know, by learning from the ADD brain and refusing to participate in this kind of tyranny of capitalist time and the tyranny of capitalist bureaucracy, perhaps uh, if we collectively do that, that will help us to destroy and overcome this very destructive system. Are these kinds of structural illnesses, if you will, um, because you write about, to be honest, I'm not sure if using a serious mental illness as a metaphor for our modern malaise is okay for theorists like 20th century French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, though it was important to see mental illnesses as uh, political rather than natural and private categories. These illnesses are experienced by individuals, but they are produced in and by societies, the personal is political, as he said at the beginning of our conversation. So are these structural illnesses, if you will, related to neoliberalism's rejection of the common good and the notion of society? What role does that uh, focus on individual liberty have on ADD and ADHD? Yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to the atomization of people, loneliness and the lack of mutual nurturing and spaces of acceptance and love where, you know, we, you know, human beings are social animals. We need to be together. We need to nurture and care for each other. That's absolutely fundamental for our existence and for our health. And that has been denied to us and that has been broken down and, of course, our brains are going to go haywire and we're going to suffer a lot uh, in conditions where we can't be together and we can't collectively nurture each other and that where society is organised in such a way, whereas instead of um, offering those spaces and opportunities for people, it's um, preventing us from, from giving that, that to each other. You also point out that we are always on the clock. And I thought that this is one of the more interesting part, uh, points that you make in your article about this relationship with time. We're always on the clock, even when we're free. In the evenings, we're preparing for work tomorrow. On the weekends, as this just happened to me this weekend, we're trying to forget about work while making sure our sleep routine doesn't get so messed up that we can't get up on time on Monday. On holidays, if we're lucky, we get to unwind for a few moments before having to start back again. Other than the need to survive, which I understand is really important under capitalism, but under uh, other than the need to survive under late capitalism and its neoliberal stage, why do you think we tolerate that lack of our own time? Is it simply a survival mechanism and nothing more? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I try to explain in the article that this regimented clock time that, you know, Eric is so kind of... Um, scornful of and that and that the people with ADD find very difficult to to um, abide by this was instituted by capitalism because capitalism brought in an economy based on wage labor an economy based on wage labor means that time becomes commodified because time becomes money right because or more, more precisely workers labor time becomes capitalist profit we have to give our time to work to make profits for those who own 
the, and control the resources that we need to survive. So, you know, that is why time becomes so regimented and we see, you know, this kind of tyranny in time of time, of capitalist time. You know, the most famous examples are the kind of Amazon warehouses, right, where workers, uh, every single movement is monitored by algorithms. And if you're not productive enough, you get fired or you hear about like poultry farms where workers are forced into wearing diapers because they don't have time for bathroom breaks, right? So that's the, like, like the sharp end of the tyranny of capitalist time. But actually we all are, even the sort of luckier ones who have perhaps easier jobs, we all face the tyranny of time. Like you say, you know, we, we're always on the clock even when we're free, you know, because even when we're not actually at work, we're thinking about work, we're preparing for work, we're trying to make sure that our sleep doesn't get too messed up so that we can get up for work. Holidays can often be stressful because by the time you've, by the time you've managed to unwind, if you've managed to unwind, you, you, have to, you have to get back to work again, you know. We call, in our household, you know, we call it the Sunday blues. Every Sunday we're like, oh, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. Um, and what was your question? Oh, is it, do we purely do this because we need to survive? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think we've internalized. I think there's a really powerful ideology, which is the work ethic, which is that we should be working and not just working, we should be suffering. Uh, and that's the, just to be able to survive, just so we can get the basic essentials that we need to be able to survive, we have to work really hard and suffer for it. And the idea that we shouldn't have to do that, the idea that we should be able to just live and have a nice life and not have to give over all of our time to often quite pointless activities uh, just to get money. I think people find that quite difficult to get their heads around, even though everybody, almost everybody hates work. Um, but I think if we, did, if we were offered the opportunity to, you know, have freedom over our time, I'm sure we would be able to find very fun and um, exciting and interesting things to do with it and, and productive things to do with it. And you write that, let's face it, along with straight up bureaucracy, which takes up an inordinate amount of our time and for which we are paid nothing, much of the paid work we do can also pretty much be classified as bureaucracy. It has no intrinsic meaning. It adds no value to society. And we do it purely to get money to stay alive. Again, those with ADD are unable to motivate themselves to do things that have no intrinsic meaning. We can ask ourselves why any of us can. When you think about it, who is it really that has the disorder? To you, is the problem that those with ADD cannot do anything that has no intrinsic meaning, or are those who can do the work that has no intrinsic meaning, are they the ones who have the disorder, if you will? Yeah, so this is another sort of key aspect of ADD. So one, one of them is this so-called blindness to time, this kind of not recognizing that time is passing and not being able to abide by the regimentation of time. And another um, aspect of ADD is the inability to be able to motivate yourself to do tasks for which you don't have any intrinsic motivation, right? So that's bureaucracy, right? Like that's 
and, and a huge amount of what we do is bureaucracy. Like that takes up a huge amount, a ridiculous amount of our time. Um, and people with ADD, I think it's due to, in part, due to um, reduced levels of dopamine in the brain. People with ADD find it really, really hard, virtually impossible to, to make themselves do tasks that don't have any meaning or that they're not internally motivated for. So the example that Russell Barkley gives actually is uh, that if you want to get a child with ADD to do their math homework, you have to structure it like a video game, which delivers a hit of dopamine every time you score a point. So you have to sort of create a motivation externally through kind of giving hits of dopamine, right? So a huge amount of what we do, firstly, straight up bureaucracy takes up a huge amount of our time. Like, I don't know what it's like for you in the States, but where I live in the Netherlands, it's like a second job. It's like I do my paid work and then I need another week to do my bureaucracy work. So it's a huge amount of time. But when you think about it, also a lot of our paid work can also be considered bureaucracy because it's pointless. It has no meaning in, the, in itself. It adds no value. And we don't want to do it. Like we only do it because we need money. So you can really consider that bureaucracy as well. So if you think about it, you know, we're spending perhaps the majority of our waking hours doing, bu doing bureaucracy and people with ADD just can't do that. They're just, their brains are just not made that way. But yeah, like I say in the article, you can ask yourself, well, is that like, who's got the problem there? Is it the person who, who can't and won't do these pointless and stupid activities? Or is it all the rest of us who are spending so much of our time actually doing them, even though we don't want to be? Like where, who really has the disorder? Yeah, and the, the issue that I've been having of late is uh, with my various health conditions, I, uh, I've, been, I've been having trouble paying my medical bills, not because I have difficulty paying the bills. It's the, uh, pr the problem is that uh, just going through the paperwork and going through having to make a phone call to uh, different insurance agencies to make certain that my bill is being paid. Or, uh, for instance, I got a $500 bill for a annual physical, and I asked them, why am I getting a $500 bill for just a physical? And they said, well, you've had another physical in the last year. And I said, I haven't had a physical for three years. And they told me that they don't have any documentation of the last time I had a physical. So how would they know that I owe five hundred dollars. It's <laughs> it's just mind-boggling, and that's the kind of thing. It's it just like I it's like hitting myself up against a wall. You point out that uh, Eric is high functioning. When we met, he was a risk analyst at a major bank, but he can only take the tyranny of time for so long. Eventually, usually after a year or two, he will quit and need to reclaim his time and his sleep. Millions of ADDers. Uh, along with billions of non-ADDers, never escaped the grind. But who knows, if we collectively adopted the ADD non-compliance with capitalist time, maybe we could. So to what extent can Eric or anyone say no to time? Can we say no to time more now than in the past because of the remote, remote nature of work since the beginning of the pandemic and mutual aid societies that have been assisting us during this time? So it's a two-part question, I guess. To what extent can Eric say no to time? And to what extent can we say no to time? And has it even expanded during the pandemic? 
Well, firstly, your experience with um, getting bills paid and the absolute hellish nightmare of having to make calls and follow up and query things and find out, you know, and then try to reason with these people and argue. And that is, you know, so frustrating in that. That's the kind of thing that people with ADD find almost impossible and that can get themselves into a huge amount of trouble that way. I I write in the article that in the Netherlands, where I live, um, the state and private sector bureaucracies are often intertwined. For example, if you owe some kind of tax to a government department, they, if you're behind, they will hire private debt collectors to come after you. And once they've done that, once you're in the hand of these hands of these private debt collectors who are just doing this to get to get money to extract money off you, that's that's the whole purpose for existing. Once you're in their hands, it's almost impossible to extricate yourself from them, and you're just constantly having more and more fees added on, more and more fines added on. You have to spend hours and hours, you know, try, making phone calls, waiting, writing trying to reason argue these are things that people with ADD find it almost impossible to do so it can be very very traumatizing it has been very traumatizing for Eric to get into the grip of 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 these people and and face that kind of harassment and that kind of financial difficulty as well once you once you're you know experiencing these fines and these fees that are constantly compounding um and yeah, so I totally understand your problem there with uh, getting your medical bills paid, and I'm very sorry to hear that. But in terms of escaping time, I think it's very difficult for individuals to escape capitalist time because what that basically means is escaping work, right? Or having a lot more freedom and flexibility when it comes to work. And I don't think... I don't think this is something that individuals can do by themselves. I think they're privileged individuals and to an extent we are privileged because Eric, when he does work, he, he can earn a, a decent wage, which means he can save up and then he can quit and then he can take some time off and, you know, recover, rest, recover, get a bit of sleep. Uh, although it's quite difficult to live in that kind of cycle, but it's, possible for some but only for people with that privilege you know uh most people can't avoid work and and the kind of regimentation and discipline that is required of us through work i think if i think but i think that is what we should be trying to do and i think but i think that needs to be a collective endeavor One last question for you, Laura. We have been speaking with writer, editor, and independent scholar Laura Basu, who posted the Open Democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. And just, I don't want to skip over it really quickly, but you're right. It is a collective pursuit. It's something that we need to work on together that you can't do with just individualism and individual liberty and individual freedom. It has to be something that we do together, and that's an important thing to remember. One last question for you, Laura, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write of those with ADD, what they need is what everyone needs. You then add, I've always said that love is not just a feeling, but a verb, an action. We are seeing hate 
as an action, as a verb worldwide, why are we not seeing love become a verb? <laughs> I think if you look for it, you can find it. Um, I think it's very difficult for us to create spaces of active love. Love is a doing word, as a verb. Uh, because of the conditions that society has imposed on us because of the types of regimentation and trauma that have been inflicted upon us all. But I think, you know, if you look closely, you can find spaces, groups of people who are extending love um, to themselves and to others. And I think perhaps part of the solution is finding those people and those places and joining them. So do you think the focus on individualism and our economics of neoliberalism, do you think that they not only breed hate, but undermine love? Yes, of course. I think they make it very difficult for, um, I, think, I think these conditions this way of organizing the economy is traumatizing uh, for all of us, even the very rich, possibly especially the very rich, and certainly for the rest of us. Uh, and I think when you're traumatized, it's very difficult to love yourself and to love others. So part of, part of collective action needs to be mutual healing. Laura, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This was not only enlightening in this conversation, but for the reading, it was very revelatory to me, and I really appreciate uh, you being on the show today. This was really fantastic uh, work, and now that I have your email address, I'll be bugging you in the future to be back on the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks very much for having me on. All right, take care. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell if what you just heard from Laura Basu on ADHD and ADD being capitalist pathologies, if that conversation was in some way enlightening, deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. You can also show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just going over to thisishell.com and clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, I couldn't stop thinking about Henry Giroux's mentioning of neoliberalism's dependence upon our historic and societal amnesia. In fact, I realized that since returning to the show in the middle of last month, uh, we've been discussing that amnesia with guests repeatedly, and I didn't even notice. Whether it's the mass shootings and killings that are fueled by that amnesia or other assaults upon society inflicted on all of us by this late stage of capitalism known as neoliberalism, things like gentrification, homelessness, and a general climate of hatred that's gone global, they all depend upon our collective amnesia, our memories being wiped clean by the public-private partnership that dominates our world today 
and a partnership that is dominated by the private market. We also shared an interview with Henry from back in 2013, which was his third appearance on This Is Hell. Henry has been appearing on the show since 2009. At that time, Henry was on our show back in 2013, was on our show to discuss the cruel and brutal disposability of youth, a disposability that has become far too commonplace in the United States today. And you can hear that 2013 interview as well as my blah, blah, blah about uh, our collective amnesia of society, of societal amnesia and historic amnesia by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. And this week on Patreon, I will be revealing exactly why I believe I have ADD. So you'll want to be tuning in for that this coming week. It's now time for our second live installment of Seb's Soapbox, our newest segment where producer Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, gives his take on history as it's taking place today. Sebastian. I'm here. I'm here. And would you like to do your segment now? Uh, yes, of course. Oh, let's, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Seb's Soapbox. Please tell me where you got that sound from and exactly why you use that. Uh, that's kind of an. <laughs> so uh, my wife told me that I laugh like a kookaburra, <laughs> and uh, that's uh, basically why I resorted to that. Uh, a past uh, uh, contributor to our show, uh, who is now a New York Times best-selling author, Jay Ryan Straddle. He was on the show because he had the most wonderful laugh that was just just the best thing and I was like I gotta get this guy back on the show at all times because I love his life <laughs> alright so let's hear it Sebastian yeah. alright <clears throat> so last week last week I talked about the dangers of uh, dehumanizing those guilty of inhuman thought and action and this week uh, I'd like to talk about how uh, sanctification of champions of whatever our side is is equally dangerous and uh, in this country especially, uh, the thing that I call, or that sociologist Robert Bella called, American civil religion, uh, and those who are faithful to this creed often put current and former elected officials upon uh, more than human pedestals. Uh, just think of the founding fathers, more of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, or how the office of the presidency in and of itself... Um, is a thing that is invested with an almost supernatural veneration. Uh, and venerating leaders in this way is something that also blinds us, because nobody is more human than others, uh, be their name Lincoln, Reagan, Obama, or Trump, for that matter. American politics is very inviting for these dynamics, since the two-party system invites a form of black-and-white thinking, where those on our team are elevated beyond mere humanity, while those on the other team are essentially painted as disgusting, barely human monstrosities. And this is true of both parties and their respective fans, and that in and of itself is also a huge problem, because nobody should be a fan of any politician, because politicians are not your friends. Don't have, uh, what's it called, don't have uh, 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 parasocial relationships with politicians. That's just the, like, duh, no, don't do that. Uh, but this kind of thought is deeply ingrained in the American tradition and therefore in the American psyche. Uh, since the United States lacked royalty and inherited titles at, at their founding, uh, that void needed to be filled, apparently, by venerating elected office holders. 
Um, you can just look at the debates that took place uh, at, at the founding of the nation, uh, trying to find how the president should be addressed. Uh, <laughs> there were ideas floated uh, that the president should be addressed with Your Excellency or uh, other venerated titles like that uh, before... Uh, before eventually uh, a somewhat more somber Mr. President prevailed. Uh, but anyway, most nation-states in the modern world have national heroic figures that represent the aspirations and ideals the nation officially strives for. And in many cases, these figures are former heads of state or part of the founding generation of the nation who managed bringing the people in their country through difficult times. Uh, but only very few modern industrialized nation-states elevate their elected officials to similar heights as the United States of America does with uh, its own past leaders. The United States has qu uh, quite the pantheon of sacred secular figures representing the nation-state. Uh, first of all, um, first of course, are the mythical founding fathers. Um, and among later presidents, there are people like Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Teddy and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan, uh, who all offer benevolent guidance from above, informing the nation's mythological self-perception as a sacred, secular project. Uh, so the state we here in hell live in, um, uh, Illinois, proudly bears land of Lincoln on every license plate. So it is hardly surprising that one can barely walk a block through the, nation, uh, the nation's, the state's capital, Springfield, without bumping into some historical marker, building, museum, or plaque that in some way memorializes Honest Abe. Lincoln himself, uh, and in his uh, and his place in the pantheon of of uh, civil religion in the United States is somewhat peculiar because he presided over the nation's worst and most destructive war to date, an internal war no less. Uh, he also uh, oversaw the largest uh, mass execution in American history uh, during the Dakota Wars in 1862, which very few people today know because it's not talked about because, well, it's Lincoln, how dare you? Um, and he also carries the title of Great Emancipator for ending chattel slavery, uh, a system that the American economy had been based on uh, up until 1865. And uh, no fewer than three states, four if you count Washington, D.C., uh, have a claim to him because he was born in Kentucky, started out as a lawyer in Indiana, and then rose to fame and political power in Illinois, and finally spent uh, the last eight years of his life as president in the nation's capital. The Abraham Lincoln uh, Presidential Museum in Springfield celebrates this elected public official in many ways, uh, which in some cases exhibit questionable taste and in others just veer into pure hagiography. It is both a temple for Lincoln, especially the Great Hall, where visitors can take pictures with the mannequin Lincoln family, uh, and in some ways reminiscent of an amusement park. The techniques which the main exhibition uses to keep the visitor's attention are surely inventive, expensive, and glossy. The exhibition, however, is light on actual artifacts and very rich in multimedia blitz. Uh, it is also rich in pathos and brimming with patriotic national pride. The elevation of a figure like Lincoln to such heights is surely understandable, but it does not allow much room for interrogation or interpretation. And the same is true for most of America's other secular saints. And to question them, to, and to interrogate their motives and how they lived up to the ideals they supposedly stood for is for many tantamount to heresy. 
And this, for any society, is a dangerous social mechanic. An open society must be able to question their past leader's goodness. Uh, the past is never dead or resting. It is always in motion through interpretation, reinterpretation, shifts in social and political paradigms, and just new findings in, uh, in the historical record. And the dangers of blindly elevating someone like Lincoln to these heights are illustrated in the way the heroes of the Confederacy are celebrated in the South. Uh, because here we have military men and, again, elected public f officials like Jefferson Davis, who, although they represent defeated and an utterly despicable past, are lifted up to the same status of sec secular sainthood as Lincoln uh, is. In criticism of the validity of monuments like, like these are oftentimes brushed aside. The positions these figures, metaphorical and physical, inhabit are, in the Southern mindset at least, seen as equally sacrosanct and unquestionable. And to act against them is, again, tantamount to secular sacred heresy. But these are the easy examples. The harder ones are the public secular saints who are on closer inspection neither all good nor all bad. George Washington, for example, the nation's mythical founding father who could never tell a lie, <clears throat> had dentures made from slave teeth and claimed ownership of a substantial amount of human beings of African descent. Uh, the latter is also true for Thomas Jefferson, who also, on top of that, sired several children with underage slave mistress Sally Hemings. Uh, but to shine a light on these uh, uh, less than savory aspects of the lives and deeds of these mythical figures means walking on thin ice. To insult the Founding Fathers by claiming them to be less than pure is to insult the nation itself. And this whole process also leads to a split between the actual persons and the mythical personas they inhabit. But interrogating the person behind the persona is again tantamount to heresy, since this split is often obscured and not everyone adhering to American civil religion is quite aware it even exists. Uh, the danger here is the development of blind spots in the national past. Uh, the higher a public figure is lifted towards something resembling sainthood, the worse the blind spot gets. Um, in the worst-case scenario, such a blind spot can obfuscate any and all bad deeds any given nation was ever involved in and leads to the creation of legends that must not be questioned. And anyone who does so becomes a traitor to the body politic. And this is a trend in today's America and how public discourse about the American military is handled, for example. The troops increasingly become uncoupled from the actual people who work in the military, while the military becomes a pars pro toto stand-in for the nation itself. To question the troops is heresy. It's treasonous. It's un-American. And that's a mechanic that often serves to deliberately, or not, erase the existence and lives of veterans, for example, who oftentimes are abandoned by the military after their service time has ended. And as someone who grew up in West Germany, this lionization of the military and public figures, I, of course, cannot help but react with apprehension, because modern Germany does not really have many, if any, parallels to this. Few uh, modern Germany has few memorials to elected officials, no memorials to military leaders, um, and uh, he, the troops generally are not seen as the champions of the nation, uh, but are thought of as citizens in uniform who are not really much better or worse than any other other persons, citizens, um, all throughout the ranks. And German leaders, past and present, lack this patina of sainthood. Uh, granted, there are still monuments to people like Bismarck, um, and of course monuments to past kings and queens and all kinds of old nobility, but those are understood differently. 
Uh, it would generally not create a huge outrage if someone publicly criticized Bismarck, and people do that a lot these days. Uh, it is quite clearly understood in German discourse that these public figures are, well, fallible, um, and uh, uh, the people on the pedestals are generally not not beyond criticism. Um, and this is where I should stop because we're already running over time. Uh, tune in this Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Thursday, because I'm not in town on uh, Friday. Uh, to our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash this is hell radio 1996 uh, to see uh, me give an expanded live streaming video version of uh, this soapbox and I will go in a little more detail this past weekend I was hanging out with the person who as I was mentioning earlier I think I did at least uh, gets, gets us the Bundestag calendar the wall calendar every year where that shows all the meetings and that kind of thing and uh, she is also from Germany and she had very much of the very same criticism that you have today uh, when it comes to looking at political parties as teams and being fans of politicians and the other thing reminded me of is how Spencer Thunderball Thayer, a past producer on our show, was from, uh, or is from, Springfield, Illinois, mm. and he told me how much he hated Lincoln by the time he graduated from high school, because Lincoln is just shoved down your throat every year. Like, every year you go over to the uh, Lincoln Museum, and which I've been to, and I didn't really understand why he had so much anger with Lincoln uh, until I went to Springfield, Illinois, and you cannot swing a dead cat without hitting something <laughs> that says something about Abraham Lincoln. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Uh, so, Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? <laughs> what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Uh, and on Facebook, uh, Wojciech R. Uh, replies, farting in elevators. <laughs> God. Uh, so we're going to be real mature yeah. with these responses. <laughs> That's what I'm getting so far. Uh, Nick E. says, creating and maintaining a booger pile. <laughs> Yep. Uh, also, up mature. Personali personalized austerity and nonstop binging on noir. <laughs> there you go. Um, and finally, Ila Kat. I don't even know if that's an, if that's a real name. Yekaterina. Ila. Okay. Uh, says capitalist cannibalism, eating the rich one mofo at a time. <laughs> so again, you can email us your answer to this week's question from hell. To Chuck at thisishell.com. You can uh, post it on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishell. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. And the winner gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring interviews from the first couple of decades of the 21st century. The winner hat and everybody's favorite, the trucker cap. You can get all those things right now by going to thisishell.com. And if you are a Patreon subscriber you get all that stuff with a discount a five dollar discount by using a special code word that only patreon patrons know so as promised sebastian i hope you enjoy these i hope everybody enjoys these as much as i did here are my favorite comments by the graduating seniors of houghton lake high school as published in a special section of the hometown small town northern michigan weekly newspaper the Houghton Lake Resorter. you got to wonder what is behind J.C. Andre's message for her fellow seniors, which is, I don't know any of you guys. 
But whatever the reasoning is, may be revealed in J.C.'s advice to underclassmen. J.C. writes, please stop bumping into people in the hallways. Also, stop kissing and touching each other in the hallways. And I'm starting to think that J.C. had the unenviable job of being a hallway monitor. Nolan Aker's message to his fellow seniors is brief and to the point. School sucked, huh? Nolan's advice when it comes to school sucking is, Fight against the hierarchy. School is bad and needs reform. Bradley Bates' solid advice to underclassmen is, Don't be as stupid as you are. Peyton Bush's message to his fellow seniors is probably not what you want to hear from a graduating high school senior when that high school happens to be in a town that is thoroughly dependent upon tourism. Peyton's message to his fellow seniors is, Run away. Don't come back to this town. I think... Hannah Stevenson may have either flunked or didn't get very good grades when she took statistics because her advice to underclassmen is, don't take statistics. And finally, Hannah Maxwell's message to fellow seniors is a bit harsh. Hannah writes, you all need to spend less time judging others and more time analyzing your own crappy life choices and then maybe you'd be better people. So congratulations to the 2022 graduating class of Houghton Lake High School, and here's to hoping the class of 2023's message and advice will be filled with as many fond memories and hope for their classmates' future. Or bitterness and angst. Either way, we're going to be reading them on the air. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vopper for producing as well as thanks to as well as another edition of Seb Soapbox, an expanded version of which will be posted live on Thursday at 3 p.m. Chicago time on our YouTube channel. Uh, this is Hell Radio 1996, and also thanks to our guest Laura Basu, uh, Sebastian, who is our next guest to be here on This Is Hell this week. Uh, our guest tomorrow is Donna Merch, and um, she uh, she's going to be talking about her book Asada Taught Me. Yes which I'm looking forward to. And I'm also looking forward to doing that research in about six minutes. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.